statement to make that being that this is a, this seems to me to be a blatant attempt on the part of the establishment to uh, tell it like it is, where to, uh, to keep the, to keep rockers from coming here and uh, you know save this fair city for the straight people. Well, I think that uh, the revolution's the, over. <laughs> Everybody go home. Revolution's over. Remember, obedience to the law is the only true freedom. And crime does not pay. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Mishkin of Mishkin Law in Chicago. I'm joined by my co-host today, Rob Hunt, who's back in California and uh, uh, has lots of good things to say. Uh, Rob, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing great. Another exciting uh, week of cannabis and uh, Grateful Dead talk. So always my favorite time of the week, Larry. As is mine, and, and you know, I love that opening clip that you selected for us today because it's uh, it's great in so many ways. First of all, for those of us who started our dead careers later in the uh, the dead life cycle, which for me was 1982, and you a couple of years after that, but it really wasn't much different for either one of us. Stage banter was a rarity. Uh, I can count on one hand almost the number of times I heard Jerry Garcia speak from the stage uh, at dead shows. Um, and Bobby, you know, outside of his, we'll be right back, or thank you, everyone, have a good night at the end, you know, there just wasn't very much. Bobby would make a crack-up comment every now and then, right? But, you know, to have them really going back and forth like that just in and of itself is great. However, what really makes this stage banter special, and I'm going to let you dive into this in a second here, is this is a show in uh, New Orleans, uh, that's dated January 31st, 1970. It was part of a three or four night run that the Grateful Dead were doing at a new musical venue down there called The Warehouse. And they had the Peter Green bluesy era of Fleetwood Mac opening for them every night. And this is the second night. After the first night, they went back to their hotel and you take it from there. Well, the, uh, the story, as I understand it, is uh, they got back and the cops were already waiting for them. There was... Nothing that they all got searched. Nothing was found on any of the uh, the band members, uh, but allegedly the police claimed that they found stuff in the room which they had searched warrantless. Um, you know, before anyone was even back there to to oversee what they were doing. And the only person that really um, that you know opined on this at the time was Mickey Hart's father Lenny, who was still their manager at the time, who I think came out and said, you know, very suspicious circumstances that this place got searched and they're being um, they're being uh, you know strung up like this. You know, again, I think that's where the uh, the line set up like a bowling pin and trucking came from, is that no one thought it was a, a legit bust. They, are, you know, it seemed to be that the drugs were planted on them. That's you know, again, it's hard to imagine a time in Grateful Dead history before trucking, but you know, the experience I think gave us one of uh, the Grateful Dead's most uh, well known and well loved classics as a result of uh, January thirty first, nineteen seventy. No, it, it it certainly did, and you know even independent of the song, right? It, it's it's one of those moments in, in Grateful Dead history and, and certainly, no doubt, you know, might made much more famous because of its, its, its role in the song. But uh, here were these guys that were, you know, bringing a new sound to the world. And as far as they were concerned, they treated marijuana the way most of us are just starting to treat it right now. Uh, for them, although, you know, they all recognized that the laws were out there, they didn't really see them as laws that applied to them, them not necessarily being the Grateful Dead, but the whole movement and 
and uh, generational change that was happening at the time and that marijuana was a much as much a part of that as anything the fact that they weren't obvious and blatant about it to the point where you know their neighbors complained and the cops came to knock on the door and there was smoke billowing out of the room and instead like you said rob uh, you know, police come back or they're conveniently waiting for them uh they've supposedly already found the evidence which any of us who even took you know nothing other than introduction to criminal law knows is not going to stand up in any court although Louisiana, I suppose, is not just any court. But yeah, that that's a momentous moment in the Grateful Dead life. And the people who were seeing those shows that first night obviously had no idea. And then the next night, maybe some of them did, right? There's no internet spreading this news story around. So people would have had to have waited to hear from it based on whatever traditional news sources there were, you know, slanted in whatever way it was going to be slanted. And these guys get up on stage that very next night, which is the 31st in the show we're featuring today. And lo and behold, there they are talking about their bust. I think it's just, it's, it's, it's a classic moment. Yeah, it, it is. And, uh, you know, as you said, I, I can very rarely remember anyone in the band saying anything on stage outside of just a couple of words. And even, you know, back in the early 70s, it was rare for, you know, any real banter to happen from the stage. To the point that, you know, anytime it does happen, people recognize and go, oh, yeah, that was a night that there was stage banter that said the following. And, and, you know, and I've got to say that one of the things, and you know, we'll start getting into discussing Canvas here in a second, one of the things I, I thought that was so interesting about it was they said very little. You know, if, if I'd gone through that, you know, I think I'd probably be a bit more upset. And I don't know whether they're advised by counsel or advised by Lenny, like, hey, keep your mouth shut, guys. Let's just get out of this town and move on. But, you know, when they actually started talking in the stage banter, it wasn't even with relation to the, uh, the bust. I think someone, someone from the audience might have said something and Weir jumped in, but they actually stopped uh, playing because they were getting shocked on stage by, uh, by a bad connection that during the Mama Try just kept shocking the band members. So they had to stop and try to figure that out. And it was during that time they were trying to fix things that, you know, it kind of came out like, hey, you know, there must have been some problems yesterday. And, uh, and Weir quickly opined on it. And then they let it go and went back and played their set. Hard to compartmentalize that way. Look, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, the fact that they were able to come out the next night and play it all is, you know, a testament, you know, to who they are and, and you know, where they viewed themselves and their fans and, and their role in all of this. And, and to have taken the night off probably would have been, you know, given into the man and, you know, letting him push them around and dictate. And, you know, and they love to play. Maybe they saw it as therapy to get up on the stage that night and play. Um, and, yeah, Bobby, you know, he, 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 he talks about it a little bit. But to me... I laugh because when I hear it, it sounds like this is a guy who normally likes to shoot his mouth off, who's been told, don't shoot your mouth off. And he's he's trying to say just enough, but not too much, and kind of stumbles over himself a few times and then, you know, just kind of steps back. But, uh, Bobby, it, it's also not surprising to me that if any of the guys up on stage, that he would have been the one who would have necessarily started talking about it and, you know, uh, bringing his take on things to the table. So, uh yeah, it's fascinating, and there's a whole lot more of this show and uh, other parts of the run and some other musical clips we have from it, um, and that'll really be great uh, to get to and to talk about. We've got some interesting news stories today on the marijuana front as well, and the first one, which is interesting, but I can't necessarily say is surprising, uh, is that Amazon has come out and uh, endorsed one of the, the pending federal bills to legalize marijuana, Interestingly, it's the Republican-led one, but maybe not interestingly, I guess, you know, where corporate America lies on these kind of things. Um, but either way, it is a bill to legalize marijuana in the United States, and Amazon is putting uh, the weight of its uh, corporate name and its brand and its identity behind it. Um, 
Have we seen anything like this in the marijuana industry, Rob? Nothing like it. And we saw it back in 2015 where Microsoft had made an announcement that they were going to you know, build a platform that was going to allow for some tracking software. But that was really more of a, a partnership and the announcement didn't really come from Microsoft. It more came from the partner group that was going to be working off an Amazon platform. So it got a lot more attention than it should have. And, uh, and it wasn't you know, the, the senior leadership coming out and saying that Microsoft was supporting this. So for Amazon to say it, yeah, I mean, great, but shout out to my friend Shalene Title, who, you know, worked on the Governor's Commission in, in uh, Massachusetts for a long time, who came out today with a tweet that basically said, oh, isn't that cool? Ten years behind, you know, the time this was cool to do. And, you know, it's like, th- this isn't exciting news. Don't be surprised when Amazon's next step is after legalization, trying to be the lead distributor of cannabis across the country. So there's, there's no way they're making this announcement without some other sort of ulterior motives. So, you know, right now everyone's cheering on Amazon until all of a sudden Amazon's putting these same guys out of business and they go, oh, shoot, you know, like maybe we shouldn't have been so supportive of this announcement. So, you know, double-edged sword, careful what you wish for. You want the endorsement of big business, but not necessarily the big business that's actually going to destroy you. Well, that, that's really a great point. And I suppose it's very important. And, you know, in the moment of like seeing a big company stepping in like that, um, you know, at least somebody like I was able to skip right past that. So it's a good thing that, you know, you're around with your more analytical mind in that regard to, to, to point that out, because that's true. You know, I, I suppose the flip side of this is, you know, to look at it and say Amazon is just greasing the skids for it to step in and take over, you know, the industry as much as it possibly can. I don't know, maybe there's some people who think that would be a good thing. You know, certainly have a good supply chain system running, that's for sure. I love the fact that you call it analytical. I think my wife would call it cynical. That too. (laughs) So, you know, I I tend to try to look at the, uh, you know, okay, why is someone doing what they're doing? And, you know, is it it, um, for the altruistic reasons you think it is? And nine times out of ten, nothing ever is. So, uh, but that again, that's, that's the very cynical mind I have to to look at things probably the wrong way instead of, you know, the euphoric way. And, and, and what's interesting as I go back and look at the article is that they did previously separate uh, uh, sponsor, not sponsor, but support uh, Chuck Schumer's bill that was introduced earlier this year. Um, and, and they're they're taking the very smart, I guess you would say, uh, corporate position that, you know, we just support the legalization and, you know, we supported Schumer's bill as far as it can go. And now this bill looks like it may have some legs, so we're going to support this one, too. You know, either way, you come out a winner, and I guess that's probably one of the reasons why Amazon has gotten as big as they have. But, you know, it's like anything else, right? On the one hand, it's easy for a lot of us to sit here and criticize the legal marijuana market and, you know, whether the quality is good and whether the system of issuing the licenses is good and all of these kind of things. But at the same time, we recognize that for the average person on the street, it's just a victory that we have legal marijuana, and they see that as a win. And, and I think that, you know, a lot of people probably look at this and regardless of what Amazon's true underlying intent is, even if they say we're going to come in and take it over, there's going to be a number of Americans who are going to say, boy, can you imagine I can order tonight by tomorrow morning my Amazon delivered high grade, you know, Amazon certified marijuana is going to be waiting outside my door in a specially sealed box or something. And I, you know, I mean, it, 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 I guess it's either, you know, a wonderful convenience or, you know, the real loss of, you know, part of the soul of the industry. Yeah. I mean, again, I don't think there's an industry out there that hasn't suffered the other uh, wrath of Amazon in one way or another. And, you know, if they want to get involved in whatever industry it is that you operate, uh, expect that, you know, they'll dominate it if they feel like it. They're, just, they're that big and that powerful. So hopefully, hopefully uh, Canvas in some way stays as regulated as it is for a little bit longer. Because, you know, again, this is giving the larger companies the ability to, uh, to ramp up their businesses, um, you know, to at least drive additional value before an Amazon comes in. Now, having said that, 
um, you know, you look at the last year's worth of performance in the, uh, the, the stock market for cannabis-based companies, and they've gotten absolutely obliterated, just destroyed in the last year. And there's really no rhyme or reason for it. I mean, now you're actually getting a lot of analysts coming out saying there's huge buying opportunities right now in, in cannabis simply because so many of these companies are terribly, terribly undervalued. Whereas a year ago, they're you know, pretty well overvalued. But in that time, they've watched revenues ramp up by north of 50%, and they've watched their share price drop by over 50%. There's just no correlation between performance and, um, and, and perceived value. You know, that's always interesting, too. And, and you know, my feeling is at this stage, you know, really anywhere, right? It, it, we're, especially places like Illinois, people come in and say, hey, once they get those licenses awarded, you know, we, we want to come in and we want to buy those licenses. What do you think is a fair price? And my answer is, it's a fair price is if you're buying whatever you'll agree to. You know, if somebody offers you a price, you agree to it, good, then that's a fair price. Um, but the how do you, I don't know how to value the, those prices. I don't know how to say what's a, what's a, uh, a an adult use craft to grow license going to be worth in Illinois a couple of years from now. You know, when they try to compete with Cresco and GTI and Verano and all these other guys who are growing on, you know, unlimited space and you're stuck growing on, you know, 14 to, you know, maybe 20,000 square feet. Each so, day that goes by, those licenses are worth less. Simple, simple math on that one is that each day it goes by closer to legalization is a day closer to California and Oregon and Washington supplying the entire country. So anytime anyone that's building infrastructure out away from the West Coast Ultimately, it's a fool's errand. You better hope you're selling this thing before legalization. So let me ask you about that, because that's a great question. You know, and I've heard a lot of states, including Illinois and others, talk about the fact that, um, you know, they would want to put protectionist laws into place so that, you know, uh, you can't ship in other states' marijuana and things like that. And right now, it's federally legal under this scenario. So shipping marijuana across the country isn't so much a federal issue as much as it is a, a state issue, right? And if Illinois says you can't ship marijuana into our state because we want to protect Illinois marijuana growers, you're not going to have the benefit of, of a whole federal task force enforcing that. You're going to have to devote Illinois resources to Illinois law enforcement officials to try to go around and see if they can intercept or find out who's receiving these packages or ordering them or where they're being shipped from or whatever. That seems like a lot of work to me. Yeah, I mean, if people play by the rules, I mean, it's only a question of time before someone, you know, litigates that uh, that question. You know, you and I have sort of pontificated about this for years, uh, and I have with many other uh, attorneys as well, but this is where the Commerce Clause and the Dormant Commerce Clause, you know, both come into play. Ultimately, you're going to be able to stop the free flow of goods going between states. You know, you can't stop commerce. Uh, you can put some protectionist policies in place as long as they actually survive scrutiny. But you know any state that says there's an abject prohibition on allowing you know other uh, states to ship in, uh, they're gonna have a real tough time with that one. So you know can they slow it down? Sure. You know the, I don't think there's a problem with that. I think they can certainly say yeah we're gonna tie it up in the courts for a period of time and try to give our our local um, you know businesses time to kind of figure out what to do about this. But you know they're not gonna be able to stop it. You know, you're sticking your finger in a dike that is near impossible to stop from you know litigated um, and settled law. Uh, that we've looked at now for you know well over a hundred years in the Constitution. True, although it seems like any time marijuana is attached to anything, those hundred years of precedent go right out the window, and we we try to reinvent it all over again. And and, and on that note, I I just want to deviate a little bit here for a minute because we we have some good news I think on what's happening on the state level, but I just want to mention something that just popped up on my screen in Illinois today. And uh, I think it's important to, to note this because although I don't think there's really a, a realistic chance that something like this is going to happen, the fact that Illinois, that's now two years into its adult use program and six years into its medical program, 
has a legislator that would forward a uh, a bill like this is, is is really shocking. And this is a bill uh, that is forwarded by a state representative named Mark Batnick uh, from Illinois. Um, he is a Republican. Uh, not that that always matters, but in this case it does, I suppose, because this is Illinois House Bill 4709 that was just introduced last week, and it's called the Cannabis THC Percentage. And in summary, it provides that uh, if passed, the current Illinois adult use uh, statute would be changed to prohibit the uh, cultivation or sale or possession or use of cannabis flower with a THC concentration greater than 10%, with concentrates with a uh, THC uh, percentage greater than 15%, and with cannabis-infused uh, food products or other types of products with uh, greater than 15% uh, a THC level. These would all be prohibited. Now, of course, it's, it's a... It's a silly legislation uh, put in by somebody who's either, uh, you know, trying to promote themselves and looking to make a little bit of, of publicity, which of course I'm giving him here. But I think that it's just so, so bad on so many levels that you know it, it can't help but be explored for a minute, including the ironic part of it, which you and I talked about before, which is if on its face, although he'll you know he'll claim that this is not designed to run the cannabis industry out of town. This is designed to protect the citizens of Illinois uh, so that the products that they are allowed to consume are not so strong uh, that you can be injured. And supposedly it's tied in to a notice of an increase in visits to emergency rooms uh, by people who are suffering uh, from having uh, consumed too much THC. On the other hand, Rob, as we talked about, if you're, if you're gonna limit cannabis-infused food items to 15% THC, that's pretty damn strong. This guy doesn't know what he's talking about. No, he sure doesn't. I mean, that's one of those situations where, uh, you know, yeah, you can, lawmakers need to spend a bit more time understanding the uh, the things they're making laws about uh, in many cases. And in this case, a 15% uh, of an edible is a pretty strong edible. You know, you might have five milligrams of THC versus, you know, the of, of what's in, you know, five milligrams at a time. That weighs next to nothing, like next to zero. So you want to try to cap it on flour and try to you know cap it on uh, on concentrates or on vape carts. I'm not in favor of it, but it can be done. You know, it's not that difficult. But you put that same um, that the same cap kind of on an edible, and all of a sudden you've made the strongest edible that anyone's ever ingested. So you know, this needs a, a great deal more thought. And I can tell you, there isn't a single um, person in the cannabis industry that would support a law like this simply based on the fact that all this is going to do is drive every consumer back to the illicit market. If they can't get the product that they want, nobody's consuming 10% THC cannabis. No, I mean, like, not even close. I mean, the standard right now is north of 25%. And to go back to 10%, I mean, that's, that's what people smoked in the 70s. Um, you know, we, we've come up with much, much better strains. And, you know, look, if you're worried about whatever, you know, the, I, I hear the argument all the time, like, oh, why do you know what you're putting in your body? Isn't it carcinogenic? Okay, well, if that's the, uh, the case, wouldn't you want to consume less? Because either way, you're gonna you're gonna use the same amount to get to the same high. It doesn't matter if I need to smoke one joint or two joints or one hit or two joints. You're getting to a place where you know you enjoy the um, the euphoria or you enjoy you know the the uh, result. You should make it as powerful as possible. Well, uh, yeah, but what kills me is you know these people are already being dishonest in the reasons why they you know. Well, we're really concerned. You're obviously not concerned about anybody because you didn't do the research long enough to find out that the proposal, because most of these people that wind up in the emergency room 
are not people that sat around and smoked too much. Maybe somebody who's done a, a concentrate hit for the first time or vaped, I could see possibly. Right. It's, it's people that eat edibles. <laughs> they ate too strong an edible. Of course it right. is. And, and yeah. he's passing a law that's going to allow edibles to be stronger than they that the market even demands. Right. Let's flood the emergency room. <laughs> you know, like it's, it's just, it's so stupid, so ill thought out. I mean, this guy's just a moron. He ought to be kicked out just for being but, that stupid. But, but the fact of the matter is that if you want to go speak to a lawmaker like that and try to explain why they're getting it wrong, Wrong, they would tell you they oh, I've had people look at this and this is what it, you know we, we've we've put the time in and you're like you have no idea what you're talking about and uh, it's, and I've had conversations with you know with U.S. congressmen specifically on some of these things and they've looked at me and basically told me to get bent and that they know better than I so who knows well right we talked about it a little bit last week too with Christy Noem and others and, and these you know all uh, knowing politicians who really don't know anything and just ruin it for everybody. And, um, you know, if our, if our good friend, uh, Mr. Batkin can do that in Illinois, well, you know, God bless him. But anybody who takes a guy like this seriously on anything, you know, ought to have their head examined. But, but Larry, I've actually had these conversations with, with people in Congress who are meant to be our allies, you know, ones that, uh, you know, just gotten something wrong. And I go, hey, I'm so pleased that you're actually on, in our corner. Let me explain one or two things that, you know, might um, illuminate a, a bit more about what you're trying to accomplish. And they just, you know, they, they're completely dismissive. Just absolutely dismissive. So, again, I'm not saying that, uh, that that I'm always right. I'm just saying that sometimes when I know for certain that somebody else is, is a little bit off base, they should want to, uh, to to have the education. They should be curious. But, you know, in order to be a politician, you have to be able to project that no matter where you are, you're always the smartest person in the room. And to have somebody else who might even be an expert, you know, if they don't get to announce and say, I could explain this to you, but I'm going to let Mr. Hunt explain it because that's what he does best. And, uh, you know, and then they can pass. That's fine. But if you start, you know, throwing stuff out that they haven't, you know, taken their credit for, you know, they all go run and hide and, you know, get upset because it's, you know, it doesn't work for them. But that that's always going to be the problem we're going to have. And, and that's really takes us into our next story, which is really fascinating because um, the Mississippi lawmakers have finally been able to make a deal uh, to send a medical marijuana bill to the governor this week. And the reason that this is significant is because approximately 14 months ago, Mississippi voters passed an initiative to legalize medical cannabis, and then the state Supreme Court promptly overturned the law. So, you know, we saw this with South Dakota and with Christy Nome's administration taking uh, the law once it was passed by the voters to court and getting it declared unconstitutional and tossed out as well. And now all of a sudden we're going to sit here and say, well, this is great. You're sending the medical bill to the governor to consider. I, I don't see where anybody thinks that this guy is, is very much a friend of, uh, of any of this, right? Uh, this is Tate Reeves, I believe, down in Mississippi. And, you know, Tate Reeves is... Well, I won't say it, but, you know, somebody who I disagree with on just about every issue under the sun, not because it's a matter of right wing or left wing, but it's a matter of common sense. Even if I found something I did agree with Tate Reeves on, I'd probably disagree just on principle of everything else I disagree with him on. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, this is a guy who, you know, threatened to veto any draft bill that was sent to his desk. And they've, you know, they've all tried to work this out. Maybe he's, you know seen the light, right? And the, the money from the marijuana industry has made its way into his uh, political coffers and things like that. Who knows? But, you know, whatever the case may be, you know, good old Tate apparently is ready to jump on board, or at least enough of his uh, lawmakers think he's ready to jump on board. And, you know, they, they can't keep holding their place to fame in the cannabis industry forever just because they're the site of the one federal uh, 
federal farm where you can grow marijuana, which you know I've been told may be the worst marijuana ever grown in the history of the world. Yeah, well, we'll see what uh, old Tate does. But uh, you know that leads into the fact that a lot of other governors seem to be very supportive of cannabis right now, and you know we're actually watching quite a few state of the state union addresses that have come out in the last couple of weeks, where their governors or governors of multiple states have discussed marijuana and cannabis as as part of their um, part of their. Uh, platform of what to expect in the next year and you know the fact that you know not only they mentioning it but they're actually talking about the benefits and everything else that's happening as a result of either legalization of cannabis or their support of cannabis it's been really unique to watch to see this many governors come out and, and make this as part of uh you know even if it's minor but a part of their uh their discussion to their constituents well i think that's true and and you know it, it's very impressive to see it in certain states obviously uh with governors who put themselves very strongly behind it. But, you know, as we were saying before, we always have to be careful in this industry because we do have South Dakota and we do have Christy Noem, who is still very much against it. But, of course, now that it's gonna, it looks like it's gonna, it eventually going to come into being there, you know, now all of a sudden she's talking about how she takes the state citizen's health very seriously, even though she allowed super spreader events in her state like nobody's business. I don't make these decisions lightly, she said, and when we create new policy, we're going to do everything we can to get it right from day one. Our state's medical cannabis program is one example. So here she is crowing and taking credit for a wonderful state medical program that they're putting together in South Dakota, even as, on the other hand, she does everything she can to stop it from happening. Well, that is the hypocrisy that's Christine Elm, and uh, I don't expect to see her change anytime soon. I think that she uh, she enjoys the, uh, the position that she has, and... Uh, and is applauded by many in, uh, on her side for, for taking very controversial positions. So we'll see. I mean, look, the good news is a lot of governors now are, are feeling a different way. Good news is, as we talked about last week, we've got a lot of bills pending. The fact that, you know, the, the House and the Senate in Mississippi have actually, you know, in a very, very, you know, right-wing House and uh, Senate in Mississippi have now put a, a bill on the desk. And I'm guessing that Reeves probably has you know, little choice but to sign it based on, the, um, based on a very strong you know, GOP support of this bill. Sure, and Mississippi is an ideal place to grow marijuana. They can grow a lot of it down there. And as we've seen in other states, you know, they can stand to make a pretty decent amount of money. And perhaps the only state in the union with a worse financial record than Illinois right now is Mississippi. So, you know, Lord knows that it can only be positive for them in that regard too. And it's like we always say, uh, you know, most right wingers don't have a problem with it. Some of it, you know, just remains so slavishly loyal and devoted to their perception of what a true Republican should be uh, that they just have to have a knee jerk reaction that says, well, we can't possibly have marijuana. Uh, you know, there's a reason why Richard Nixon put it on schedule one and, you know, and we can take it from there. But uh um, yeah, it, you know, it's unfortunate and it's problematic, but it is nice that there are so many other statements out there, or, or excuse me, so many other uh, governors out there who are so willing to uh, publicly recognize the value of it and, and talk positively of it and what a positive addition it can be to their state, both in terms of an economic uh, indicator, as well as whether it's health benefits or all the other things we've talked about, lowering crime and lowering DUIs and lowering domestic violence, lowering teenage smoking. Um, and, you know, after a while, people see that, and it's hard to deny the benefits. Yeah, and the benefit of not having to bust people on Bourbon Street, you know? It's the, 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 <laughs> bringing it right back to, you know, the, the, even, even musicians and, you know, the Grateful Dead weren't immune to this. And if you were to, you know, ask those guys on January 31st, uh, 1970, would they ever expect that you're now having debates on which, you know, southern governors were going to be supportive of cannabis? 
you know, that's a far cry from a zero tolerance policy that, you know, we saw in 1970. And quite honestly, in states like, like Mississippi or in quite a few other states, Utah, Nevada, you know, all the way until like the late 90s where, you know, a, a single seed was considered a felony. So uh, amazing progress. It's an amazing progress in a way that, uh, you know, I would love to, to, to hear the reaction of the members of the band of, you know, what do you think would happen nowadays if, uh, you know, you rolled into that town as 20-something, 20-something-year-old musicians uh, and, and, you know, had a bit of controversy surrounding you, do you think you'd still be targeted? Or could they at least, you know, have to use something else outside of, like, cannabis as the, uh, as the, the reason for the bust? Well, right, but that, that's, that speaks volumes, right? Because then they would just find something else. My impression of all of that was not so much that they really cared about cannabis. That's New Orleans, for God's sakes. People do everything down there. You know, they're the last town that's going to get all moral about something. I think they just didn't like the Grateful Dead, and they wanted to find an excuse to bust them. The marijuana was a very convenient excuse. And to their chagrin, the dead just went out the next night and played another concert, talked about it, and kicked it right back in. And, you know, let's talk about this show and what was going on at this time, right? That The night before, the night of the bust, that show was Tom Constantin's last night with the Grateful Dead. And the little side note to the bust apparently is that he and Pigpen were not busted, because they went back to the hotel separately at a different time, or they were staying in a different part of the hotel. And so, you know, it didn't affect them. But by the next day, TC was gone anyway. Yeah, I mean, again, I don't know whether or not that was, you know, the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back, or whether or not he just said, you know, I just don't need this crap in my life. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of uh, of things that came out of that day, and you know, a lot of things that came as a result of that day. So, uh, you know, I'll tell you that looking at the set list, you know, I, I certainly identified it as one that has you know sort of an overweight um, uh, exposure to, to different crimes and, and different uh, you know results of crimes. So, you know, I, I find it ironic that the only time they did talk about the bus was coming right out of Mama Tried, which you know famously has the the chorus, "I turned 21 in prison." So, uh, you know, I don't know if it's by accident that they picked a set list that specifically was addressing the fact that they hadn't experienced the night before and they just kind of wanted to do something cathartic to get it off their, um, their chests. It, it's a really interesting set list and it's a, fortunately a fantastic, you know, uh, on archive.org, a fantastic sound quality version of, of this show exists uh, for everyone to listen to. And, you know, one of the other really unique things is at the time that the dead weren't doing all that much acoustic. You know, you, you got an occasional set here and there, a half a set here and there of acoustic music. But on this night in particular, we ended up with four or five songs at the end of the set that were played acoustic simply because, uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier, they kept getting shocked on stage. They finally had to unplug their electrics and say, okay, let's, let's play the rest of the set acoustically. And we got some gems that came out of that, you know, that uh, you know, have been all around this world and Little Sadie and a couple others that just, you know, you don't get too often. Some that became Garcia uh, acoustic staples. But, you know, the, the set list itself is just a, a, a really fun list and great sound quality and a great sort of snapshot of what the band was like, you know, sort of dealing with not just the blow of being busted, but dealing with the blow of losing one of their two organ players and just saying, okay, let's, let's go out there and play a, a fantastic show. And, and one of the things that I like about these acoustic tunes as well, I mean, some of them, like The Race Is On, you know, went on to become a, a, a standard of theirs, both electric, electric Dead and Acoustic Dead. It's famously on um, on uh, Reckoning, and uh, that's the first place I had ever heard that. But uh, songs like Long Black Limousine, Seasons of My Heart, Sawmill, uh, uh, those were songs that I'm not sure how many other times The Dead ever played them at all. Um, you know, I don't think that those were necessarily standard parts of their 
uh, uh, you know, regular acoustic sets, which were always seemed to be focused on more of the dead standard tunes, uh, played with acoustic. And what really impresses me is I, I have to sit here and wonder, you know, whether these were tunes that they had practiced before and they knew about it or when they converted over to acoustic, uh, did they feel like it, it forced them to start calling upon uh, acoustic tunes that maybe they knew, but that they hadn't necessarily played in a while? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, as you said, there's there's songs on there that, you know, the, if for no other reason this uh, show is worth listening to just because they're songs that just don't exist in other set lists. You know, there's some that went on to be staples, but the, the vast majority were ones that, you know, were only played a couple times at most. So, you know, really, really fun. Uh, and on the electric side, it was a really good sort of cross-section of, you know, pure 1970. Obviously, like, you know, hard to handle. Anytime you get one of those is always fun because, you know, Pig is going gonna, is gonna to go after it pretty hard. You also had um, a great Mason's Children on here, which I think, you know, maybe we should take a listen to because uh, it's, it's a super strong Mason's Children. We can talk about some, some lyric controversy on the other side, especially in light of the fact that, you know, the, the, the dead got busted the day before. Very good. Go ahead and uh, spin it first. Bring me to the reader man. Payback one was long. Help me send some other man. Write it off the I have to say that that's such a great song and it's so strong and such great instrumentals and I'm it makes me sad that they they played it about about 15 times total between 69 and 70 and then it just disappeared basically from the set list forever and you know who knows why you have to ask I suppose Jerry or, or Phil or Bobby and maybe they all have different ideas but but go ahead and, and, and set up the stage for this uh, lyric controversy. Well, before I do I've actually heard rumors that you know the part of the reason that it was uh, they got rid of it is it was loosely based on um, on Altamont, and then when they came out with New Speedway Boogie, they decided that that was going to be their staple Altamont song, and that Mason's no longer held the same appeal. Uh, how much truth that there is, I don't know, but in, in Box of Rain, I think uh, Hunter makes an allusion to it, saying, you know, that this is inspired by the events at Altamont. So, you know, perhaps that's it. You know, there's other people, obviously, that think that Mason's Children is a reference to the Stone Masons, and, you know, so... There's a lot of different theories about the song and about you know kind of what the um, the nature of the song was, but the line in particular is the uh, you know the take me to the repo man or take me to the reefer man. You know I've heard uh, a lot of deadheads say it both ways. I've always believed that the uh, the proper words are take me to the repo man, but you know I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that one. I always thought it was take me to the reaper, R E A P E R, like the Grim Reaper. That's really funny. Yeah. And, the repo man has worked in my mind because it always appeared that the next lines, you know, were, uh, is, you know, write it off as stole, right? You know, it's, uh, it got taken, you know, if you can't get it back, basically it's... Oh, I, I see that. I mean, I see where you could hear it and wh why it would uh, certainly uh, apt for that, uh, for that, that type of song too. Yeah, I don't know. But, but Reaper Man works as well when you think about, the, you know, that Mason died on Sunday or, you know, it's, uh, you know, so there's, there's certainly, um, certainly different interpretations that would work with, uh, with death as a theme as well. Yeah, I don't hear, I mean, it might be fun to kick around a reefer man too, but I definitely hear a P in there. You know, I, when, when they're saying that word, what, what comes on the back end of that is, I guess, where the, the, the controversy comes in, although it would certainly be fun to say reefer man, but, you know, I always used to think in um, all along the watchtower that they were saying, 
uh, Plowman Dig My Herb. So, you know, when I finally found out it was no Dig My Earth, I was like, okay, well, never mind. I hear I thought Dylan was making this great marijuana. Kind of, and we, we talked about that, too, with uh, Quinn the Eskimo, right? And everybody's going to want to doze. Or, but every, all the deadheads always thought it was everybody's going to want to dose. So. It's just much, much more fun to cheer to dose. Yeah, very yeah. much more fun to yeah. cheer to dose. No question about it, but that—that's a, you know that—that's part of the fun with them. I don't know. I in fact, uh, just just like the, the bottle was dusty, but the liquid was clean. Right, right. And you know, you know there's lots of them. And you know, I mean, it, it, to finally find out, you know, what certain lyrics were compared to what I always thought they were, um, you know, it was always very, very interesting for me. And I was like, uh huh. So that's what they were saying. And yes, yeah, you know, being able to go online. Although, really, the only source I trust is, you know. The, the Robert Hunter uh, book with all the lyrics of all the Robert Hunter songs. and Yeah, but even even there, you know, Hunter um, very rarely actually gives any sort of hints, you know, like obviously you know, he nods to, to Joplin on Birdsong and, you know, nods to a couple other things, but for the most part, he's certainly not going to get into it and say, you know, this is what the song is about. He, he kind of always believed that that was for you to interpret and, you know, make your own decisions. And, oh, I agree. But if he's given us the lyrics, he's guy. He's typing a word in. Whatever his word is, that's his word. Yeah, and, and I, I think as a true Grateful Dead nerd, I want to correct myself. Since Mason died on Monday, so oh, right. <laughs> apologies. I said Sunday. Shame on me. <laughs> well, absolutely. So, yeah, we've talked about Mason's children a lot lately, and I think because a it was such a prominent tune of theirs for such a relatively short period of time. And that really does speak to, you know, that era and the way that they were playing and the type of song it is. And, you know, there's so many of these songs we talk about. What a shame it was that, you know, they disappeared after 71, 72 on, I mean, on, on the on the Bob Weir side. Whatever happened to me and Bobby McGee, where did that go? You know, that was, that was an awesome tune. And boom, that disappeared right around that time. Or Sing Me Back Home, right? They did that from, what, 71 to 73 or something? And Yeah, the 73 Sing Me Back Homes are fantastic. And again, there wasn't an aversion to playing Merle Haggard tunes. They continued to play Mama Tried Forever. And I, I, arguably, I'd say Sing Me Back Home is a better song. As far as me and Bobby McGee, I mean, I, I loved uh, Weir's interpretation of the La La Le has. You know, it's... It was really much different than Chris Christopherson or the way Janice did it. Uh, you know, I don't know if he stopped playing it because those other two versions overshadowed it. But, you know, you listen to that Porchester Capitol Theater run from 71, that Bobby McGee is just amazing. You know, I, think I can still think of every note in that song. Yeah, it, it is fantastic. And, you know, just so many of these tunes and um, whatever, you know, I'm always happy with what I got. I always enjoyed the shows I went to. Uh, but, you know, it just really makes you think, you know, of a what if? So let me ask you this, because you're you're certainly more of a uh, of a fish uh, aficionado than I am. You know, are there songs in the fish canon that you know are old and rare, like a Mason's Children that were played only for a very brief period of time that the fish fans you know long for them to, to pull out of mothballs and play again? Yeah, I mean there definitely are, but at the same time with fish, you can actually expect that they'll do it. You know, you think about like the Baker's Dozen and think that like they didn't repeat a song for thirteen nights, and to do that, you know. That, that's a lot of songs they had to pull out, so you can almost expect that, like, you know, I think there's probably 20 or 30 songs they brought back just during that one single run. So other ones pop up all the time. Like, there's, like, I, with Fish, I never feel like something's permanently shelved. Even stuff that they only played in, like, you know, call it, like, 86, 87, 88. You know, there's stuff that they might not play all that often, or it might be really rare, but, you know, it, it's not uncommon for them to, to, to break stuff right. back Whereas out. for the dead, you reached a point, you knew St. Stephen wasn't coming back. A lot of these songs were never coming back. You know, and uh, otherwise, except for the occasional dark star, and was it 
was it summer tour in 89 or 90 when they brought back death don't have no mercy for a little while yeah it was alpine 89 they uh, right that they brought That's it back it was yep and uh you know that was only around and alpine 89 they also did a uh encore that we've talked about bid you good night bid you good night thank you yes yeah um you know and, and then of course like bid you good night came back for the 89 uh, warlock shows and Stuff like that, and, but and 101689, the 101689 Bob Weir's 46th birthday show was a, uh, you know, fantastic. Yeah, I love that show. This I still think it's the best version of Picasso Moon I've ever heard. <laughs> You're setting a low bar. <laughs> so, I, by the way, I actually I actually like Picasso Moon more and more. The older I get, the more I actually like that song. The more creative I think that song was, and like. Yeah, I feel the same way about like West LA Fade Away. You know, there's certain songs that like I never gave them their, their sort of credit when I was listening to them at the time, and I really like them now. Oh, I agree. And as I learn more and more, you know, even the lyrics, I mean, my favorite that's, lyric in that song is talking about the mob, right? It's a shame those boys couldn't be more copacetic. And forever, I couldn't figure out what they were saying there. It drove me crazy, you know? And then all of a sudden, I saw I'm like, well, of course, that makes total sense. Now I see where, you know. But I, I didn't. But I just thought that was very clever of them, you know, as they, as they wrote that song. And truth, I mean, that is a good song, and it tells a very, really interesting story. Yeah, and, and, and it's the creative lyrics that you just made reference to, you know, just in Picasso Moon, the, the line I've always loved is "We made wrinkles and sold them as creases," right? It's, it's such a, uh, it's such a unique, you know, kind of uh, wordplay on that. I, I feel like the, um, uh, the, the jobs that he was doing for the mob are, are relatively, you know, in that same vein, which is why I, I compared the two. Yeah, but my friends Matt, Lisa, and I, when we saw them at uh, Deer Creek and they played it and they just exploded with it, the line we just kept repeating over and over into the night was, bigger than a drive-in movie, ooh-wee, bigger than a you know? And I just loved that. I was like, that's just such a random line to drop into a song and... But you know, and, and I did it again. It's we made wrinkles advertising this creases. I think is the is the proper line. Yes, wrinkles advertising this creases. So, but yeah, good stuff. I'm, I'm, sl- I'm slipping today, Larry. I'm slipping. You yeah. know, we all we all have our days where we slip, man. And uh, <laughs> you're doing just fine. Um, so yeah, you know, if anybody else has their own thoughts on that, let us know. But it's uh, it, it's great stuff. And, and again, it's like it's what makes the the Grateful Dead canon so unique is that all the time that people spend going back and talking about this and you know, focusing on this, you know, one little thing or two little things. And, um, you know, it makes all the difference if they, you can establish, he was saying Repo Man, no, he was saying Reaper Man, no, he was saying this or that. And, you know, it, it, for some people, it's like a lifetime's work to to go through and track all of these things and, uh, you know, and, and bring them out. And although I don't have the, the dedication or the uh, uh, research chops to do that, uh, I love reading about it, and I love soaking it up, you know, and 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 appreciating all of this, uh, the, this investment, investing in uh, this stuff that the boys have done, even including you, you know, as as we as you talk about, and I think it's worth mentioning a little bit more. Is you you give a really good outline of how, uh, you know, the the fact that they're getting shocked from their instruments, you know, shades of Woodstock, right? All of a sudden, boom, it's back doing it to them again, and what's their solution? We'll play acoustic. But what I want to know is because, like, when they did the acoustic sets at uh, um, for Reckoning at the Warfield and at Radio City, I mean, those were acoustic, but with an. I mean, they still they were playing acoustic instruments, right? They still went through an electric speaker system to get out to the audience. So at this show, when they had to unplug, where they literally people you were only hearing the sound from that was what was being made by their instruments on stage, or were they still able to at least harness enough of the electrical system to utilize the speakers or whatever yeah yeah i don't know but you know it, it begs for me the question of 
when they made that switch from electric to acoustic, did they ever imagine that 52 years later, two nerds like us would be sitting here discussing it and discussing why it happened? And, you know, the fact that we ended up with a set list that otherwise, you know, you would have never gotten but for. And, you know, kind of goes back to the discussion that we had kind of after we were done taping last week of, you know, listening to the Beatles sleep practice during the, you know, the get back sessions, uh, you know, the Peter Jackson just you know, put the documentary out and how many other songs they were covering of other people's. And, you know, did they ever expect that their rehearsals were all of a sudden going to become, you know, topics of conversation 55 years later? You know, it's amazing to me that, you know, true audiophiles, like, we'll look back on stuff and just pick it apart, you know, no differently than you would as to, you know, why Shakespeare wrote a, a specific, you know, sonnet a certain way, right? So it's, you're going to have people deconstruct you forever if your craft, if you're that good at your craft. And I think it's just a testament to, you know, how exceptional the, uh, the Grateful Dead were as artists that 52 years later, here we are going, oh, thank goodness they're getting shocked on stage during Mama Try because it gave us, you know, a long black limousine. Well, that's so very true. And, and you know, it's no different, and I probably mentioned this before, that an article I read in the original book of the Deadheads that came out years ago was a little piece about how going to a Grateful Dead show and following the Grateful Dead is like being a baseball fan. And it's, you know, it, it, it's very true. You know, we all remember where we were when Carl Yastrzemski hit the home run around, you know, in, in left field there. And, you know, people remember where they were when, you know, all sorts of, 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 of big baseball moments happened and how every game is different and how everything, and there's just such, you know, we, we have saber metrics and regular metrics and people arguing over who would have been, you know, what could have a player in what, in what era. And the fact that, that the dead, I, I think that there's any, any, band or group or anything like that out there where you're always going to have even if it's just five guys sitting around in their basement you know who are going to deconstruct things i don't think anything is beyond that the thing about the grateful dead is is that so many of those people gravitate to it and they gravitate to it in a way where you know they build on the stories that the people before them have told you know and they they, they make you look at it a whole brand new way all over again and you know, I suppose it would be a very, you know, Ken Kesey thing to say, well, of course they all knew back then that you and I were going to have this conversation. How could they not, right? This is the natural evolution of them, of them doing these things and, you know, all their other mottos back when they were, you know, doing all their acid in the uh, electric Kool-Aid acid test. But even if they didn't intend that, that's, that is what makes it great is that there are guys like us who are willing to put the time in, you know, that this is worth it. There's, there's something about this, you know, we have wives, we have kids, we have lives, we have jobs, we have everything, and yet sitting around and talking about the Grateful Dead sure seems like a great way to spend a chunk of time. Yeah, no doubt. And, uh, you know, I'm already looking forward to watching, you know, the rest of the Beatles documentaries referred to or discussed. And, you know, now there's a Velvet Underground documentary that's coming out. So it's the uh, which I'm super fired up about, and I, I wish you know more and more of these things would come out because for me, like, I the, the artists that I really revere, I love watching kind of the behind the scenes of of you know what made them do what they did, uh, you know. And again, we've you know discussed with when Alex Beer was on the show, kind of the, the Velvet Underground influence and the 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 tie between you know the the Factory and Warhol and that band, um, but you know in many many ways very very parallel and similar to the, the relationship that the Grateful Dead had with the Merry Pranksters and the Acid Tests. So, you know, certain bands are kind of like a moment in time and, and have that, you know, house um, affiliation. But, you know, the way like, you know, like the, the, the talking heads would be the CBGB, you know. It's, uh, so there's, there's certain like, you know, things that set them apart that to go, okay, like they represent an era. And uh, it's to me that those are the bands that are really, really cool to, to see. Like, like the way I think of like Prince for Minneapolis. 
you know, just like representing a sound. No, you're, you're absolutely right. Those are all great examples. And, and, and those are, are rock and roll bands that are larger than their music, right? Their, their, their influence and their impact on our society extends beyond the fact just that they were, uh, you know, a, a successful rock and roll bands from a commercial perspective. You know, the things that they did and the contributions that they made to the world of the arts and to society in general, not even just through their music, but through, you know, anything else. I mean, look at, you know, a guy like Lou Reed over the years and a guy like Jerry over the years and, and all the other people in these bands and all the things they did. And, you know, for me, I like, I love going back and watching the Grateful Dead movie and I can't watch it enough. It's just, it's fun. It's exciting. It's interesting. And more importantly, I feel like it's the band in particular, Jerry, kind of like trying to give back to us, you know, the band's projection on everything and where they see themselves in all of this. And to hear all of their banter, you know, in the movie, you know, when they're off stage and in their dressing room or wherever they are, that for me was always what sold me on that movie. I mean, the music is great, but, you know, it's just wonderful to hear all of that and to see, you know, how to try to get some sense of how all of this came together and you know, you could talk about the cosmos, right? And if you really want to, you know, do a have you ever looked at your thumb kind of moment, you know, how is it that, you know, we're the lucky few, right? That, you know, after billions and billions of years, you know, all culminated in this little moment in time when humanity is here and here we are. But I take that deeper and it's not just that we're here as humanity, but we're here as humanity when Jerry was here. <laughs> and then we, you know, we actually walked the earth and we got to see, you know, I mean, think of the people that missed him on the front end. They didn't know what they missed. The people on the back end, we do know what they think about what they missed. And, you know, it's, it's tough. And there's not a day goes by that I don't say, you know, look, that was just great timing on my mom and dad's part, on my part, on God's part, whoever put that whole thing together. Um, but, you know, that makes me a believer in the dead, the whole dead, uh, you know, system, right? That I got the, I got to experience it. It was great. It was just great. We got to run away and join the circus. We're the last, the last generations of Americans that truly got to, to do that. And it's such a, and I, I can never describe it to people when they say, you know, okay, well, what's different about, you know, doing that and going to see like, you know, a hundred Yankees games and, and you know, you know, sure, okay, like it's repetition of a, of a certain thing where the outcome is different every single time and that, that part's consistent, but the rest of it, there's no possible way to describe, you know, what Grateful Dead tour was like and, and why it was such a unique experience, different than anything else we'll ever see again. Right, very much so. And, and, and you know, and, and while I think the Fishheads have done a pretty good job of creating their own community like that, when the Deadheads were, nobody had ever done it before. You never had this conglomeration of like like-minded fans who just agreed we're all going to be our own little community. We're all going to tour together. We're all going to hang out together. When you need food, I'm going to give you food. When I need a dollar, you're going to give me a dollar. And you know, for a lot of them, it, it really, really worked for a while. But but look, we, we can all touch on that. Um, this past Saturday night, I had a chance to go catch Tedeschi Trucks on the second of their four-night residency at the Chicago Theater. Besides seeing live music again, uh, it was such a pleasure to see Tedeschi Trucks. Because as we've often talked about on this show, they really epitomize all the great things about the jam band scene and, uh, and, and, and what they bring to it. You know, and a person like Susan Tedeschi was already so amazing uh, and so much accomplished in, in her solo musical career. And then, you know, boom, she marries Derek Trucks. And between the two of them, they've taken it to a level uh, that I just consistently have to go back to see to believe. So, in fact, I'm not only did I see him then, I'm going back again this coming Friday night. I know for you people who listen to the show, that'll be already two weeks ago and one week ago. But either way, um, Tedeschi Trucks is just too good not to go back and see them. It's not the same as going to a dead show with the whole circus, but it is 
kind of the same in terms of going with a like-minded group of people, you know, who would gladly go and see these guys two, three, or even four nights in a row, uh, because what they play that's going to be different will be wonderful, but what they play the same will be so great you don't mind hearing it, a, you know, a second time, and um, uh, it, it's just really, really special. They're on top of their game. Uh, Susan, unfortunately, was seated the entire show because a couple of nights earlier, uh, she had apparently injured her leg at a uh, Chicago uh, institution, the Green Mill, which is a true Prohibition-era jazz club that still has all the underground tunnels where they could escape if the feds showed up and where they kept all the booze hidden and everything. Uh, and it, it, It's almost right across the street from the Riviera Nightclub and just down the street from the Aragon Ballroom. So it's really a central, pivotal area. But of course, during the pandemic, there haven't been that many people going out and going to bars like that, although the Green Mill still puts on shows from time to time. So apparently a few nights before their first run in Chicago here, uh, Susan and Derek made their way over to the Green Mill. I'm, I don't know for sure whether they got on stage and played or whether they just sat and listened to other people, but she did tell the crowd that while they were there, uh, she injured her foot. So even sitting, though, the whole time, uh, she's just an amazing talent and such an amazing presence. And if she was on stage by herself, people would say that. And it's just that she's on stage with the guy who may be certainly the greatest living guitarist, if not you know, one of the greatest guitarists of all time, and it doesn't matter how many times I see him, Robin, you know, you can tell me your thoughts. I can't take my eyes off him. His hands and what he's doing and the sound that's coming out of it is as unique to me as the sound that Jerry was making. He's as good as they get. I mean, there's there's no questioning the fact that Derek Trucks is probably the, the most uniquely talented guitar player I've, I've ever seen at this stage. That, you know, at any, at any given time, there's someone that's the best. And at this moment in time, uh, I think it's hard to deny that Derek Trucks is the best. Yeah, uh, it's... You know, he, he has such a different style, right? He doesn't pick or anything. He sits there and just kind of flaps his hand. while, Whatever the hell he's doing under there, it's just amazing. And on some of these tunes towards the end where they really uh, kick up the tempo and, and, you know, it's like when right when the dead used to do it and you'd sit there and watch behind the Hammond B3 organ, the little wooden thing spin around and around and around. You say, okay, now they're jamming. You know, when Derek Trucks' hand moves so fast you can't see it, you're like, they're jamming. Yeah, I couldn't take my eyes off that any more than you could looking at your thumb. <laughs> Yeah, so when when Melvin's uh, when Melvin's organ or when uh, you know um, uh, Brent's organ would, would spin like that, that would just like I'd just sit there like this, like sort of bobbing my head in circles, like watching a tennis match. Uh. If, if I got my seats and I sat down and I couldn't see that, I was not happy. You know, I needed to see that. That was that was a big part of the, you know, you okay, boy, Brent is kicking it now, man. This is where you want to be. Um, but yeah, they were great to see. Um, they play great covers and they inspire me into new music that I've, you know, that I haven't listened to or hadn't otherwise been directed to just because of all of the great tunes that they cover. You know, of course, a few Derek and the Dominoes always have to get thrown in just for goodness sake. And to me, that's really what it's all about because he, he channels Dwayne, you know, he may very well be Dwayne Allman. Yeah. So hey, before we, uh, before we wrap it up today, I know we talked about it offline, but, uh, in the way that Alexander Graham Bell is famous for, you know, making the first telephone call saying, you know, Watson, come here, I want to see you. Um, <laughs> yes. We forgot to mention it last week that, uh, that you know, the, the anniversary of the first podcast was just over 21 years ago. And uh, a, a fact that probably a lot of people out there don't know, but the first podcast, which is a guy named Dave Weiner that put it out, and he'd done something that he referred to as real simple syndication and decided that he was going to, you know, try something as a podcast was, in fact, on George W. Bush's inauguration day, where the first podcast ever put out was U.S. Blues. So, uh, 
pretty cool that the, the Grateful Dead get the title of first podcast as well. So um, when I found that out, I can't say how pleased I am that we're following in the tradition of keeping you know Grateful Dead podcasting alive. And I know that everyone and their brother has a podcast these days, so it's not you know as exciting as it was to say you're the first. But uh, but I love the first podcast. You know, it, it's sort of like saying that you know things that are shot out in the space or the harmonics that are played in the space. You know, the, like the Grateful Dead and Mickey Hart have certainly been you know involved in those types of things as well, or you know the Library of Congress uh, recordings. But it, it's another major milestone of saying you know the Grateful Dead had an oversized impact that forever the first podcast in history will be a Grateful Dead song. But it's not surprising. I mean, it, it, it's not surprising both because we know how many people love the Grateful Dead and how many brainiacs love the Grateful Dead, and it's the Grateful Dead, so of course they're going to be the first podcast. But yeah, um, that's really cool. If you want to check that out too, you should definitely do it. Um, we're running out of time here, so Rob, set up our uh, set up uh, the music we have here for uh, all the listeners on our way out today. Well, I think what we have is just a little bit more, but we talked about the acoustic side of the uh, the, the January thirty first, nineteen seventy show from uh, from New Orleans. So let's play a little bit of that acoustic uh, set. We made reference earlier to uh, you know songs about crime and and songs about death, so uh, let's give you a classic example of a little bit of um, the, the peak of Little Sadie. So uh, Rob Hunt from Linnea Holdings signing off, and uh, we'll, we'll see you next week on the Deadhead Canvas Show. So thanks, Larry. Thanks, Dan, and uh, looking forward to next week. Thanks, guys. Me too. It was always fun. Uh, enjoy your cannabis responsibly and enjoy the music. The judge and the jury, they took the stand. Judge he held the paper in his right hand. Forty-one days and forty-one nights. Forty-one years to win the ball and stripes. listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Infused, a cannabis talk show, is a -a one-of-a-kind look inside the cannabis industry. Meet the amazing people who make cannabis businesses bloom as they join host Nick with Francesca and Mike for creative cannabis conversations. Get an honest look at the business of cannabis, including trends, best and worst practices, products, education, and advocacy. Whether you're kind of curious or running a cannabis, Infused has can of conversations that count. Infused is available on YouTube and is now streaming as part of the PodConnects network.